Hi everyone, we are super excited to welcome you to the macro trading floor. My name is Andreas Steno and I am Alfonso Peccatiello. We have basically been buzzing for weeks about this podcast. We uh, wanted to give you the most actionable macro content out there. Uh, and to give you an example, um, we've basically all been listening to macro podcast, finance podcast, all of us. Uh, but some of us have also thought afterwards, well, how do I actually trade this uh, once we've listened to it? And that's what we're about to change here. Alfonso, take us through the concept of the macro trading floor. Yep, indeed. So each week, Andreas, we're going to invite the best macro minds and risk takers out there. They're going to come on the show and they'll have a chance to elaborate their macro thesis behind their trade. But ultimately, they'll have to come up with a macro investment idea, an actionable one. And so there's going to be some banter. There's going to be some discussions about the underlying macro thesis. We're going to ask them some questions here and there. But ultimately, there's going to be an actionable investment idea. And you and I, Andreas, will elaborate as well after the idea is there on how to implement it in a uh, friendly way as well for people that don't have an ISDA contract or they're not institutional, <laughs> but they're just, you know, our average macro enthusiast and our average listener. And uh, before we start actually this inaugural episode, I want to invite people listening to it to subscribe to the um, various podcast app landing page of the Macro Trading Floor and also on the Blockworks YouTube channel because uh, this is going to be both a YouTube uh, show and a podcast show so make sure you subscribe to any channel you prefer so you don't miss any episode coming out we will also make sure to uh, update and publish the uh, portfolio of trades uh, on a running basis and uh, also make sure to remind our guests of their running pnl uh, let's hope that it's in green territory um, alongside all of this uh, macro trading alfonso we will of course also have a bit of fun while doing this podcast and uh, therefore we have this weekly recurring nomination for the worst take of the week in finance um both of us strive basically to find an analysis that has amused us over the week uh and i think we had quite a few candidates this week to be honest uh, i even found a couple of new ones just before uh recording <laughs> so um but i think my my favorite worst take of the week um, stems from the so-called perma bears on on bonds um, they've been uh, as i see it proven wrong for basically decades in a row uh, but in particular since 2015 but now that we have this uh, substantial sell-off in bonds these perma bears they become very very loud again uh, and that's probably what i um hate the most about such a perma view that one thing is to have that macro thesis over time but uh, another thing um, is to basically be uh, very loud as soon as you get the chance uh, uh, and, and and your thesis starts performing um, so maybe they they should be a little bit more humble given what we've seen in bond space over the last six to seven years because um, it's basically been a better bet to be long bonds than short bonds if you look at it uh, over the past years as my mentor used to say, a broken clock is right twice a day as well. And so this is the time to be um, right, maybe temporarily, maybe it's a regime change, we don't know yet. But taking a victory lap after being wrong, recording the time uh, for about a couple of decades, yeah, maybe not the best thing to do out there. And also, strategists don't have a, a P&L target. No. They, don't, they don't have a running P&L and they don't know the cost of carry. So being short bonds is, generally speaking, a negative carry trade. 
uh, over time. And of course, if you have no PNL tracker or no nobody, you know, looking at whether you're a positive carry trade or a negative carry trade, it's easier to be short bonds. But okay, so my take of the week that amused me a lot has to do with real yields. I mean, it's becoming very creative out there. It's interesting. So <clears throat> the theory says that 10-year real yields should be 10-year nominal yields minus 10-year inflation expectations. But I see all kinds of distortions to make these real yields look very negative. They need to look at, mm -hmm. you know, minimum minus 5% to impress people. And so what we tend to do is we look at Fed funds rate, for example, today minus CPI today. Okay, sure. Uh, but people, when, you know, when the private sector decides to make investment decisions or to borrow, they don't borrow today or overnight. They borrow for the next five or ten years. So they're interested in the, the term structure of these uh, real interest rates, not in spot in, uh, real interest rates. Even worse, I see people calculating real yields as 10-year nominal yields minus today's inflation. I mean, then you take mm. a term structure of nominal yields and then no term structure for inflation expectations. Well, okay, it's fun that way too. Yeah, I've seen that quite a few times as well. Um, the ten-year bond yield minus the spot inflation, and I, I simply think that the practical reason why a lot of people use spot inflation uh, instead of inflation expectations or traded swaps is that they don't know the ticker of the ten-year inflation Could swap. Be. Could be. Um, I, I mean, a lot of people don't know how to find it. We're gonna try and help uh, our global macro enthusiasts here listening to us. Uh, and to the guests in unpacking all these, you know, dark corners of global macro. Before we introduce the guest, Andreas, shall we have a chat about what's going on in markets for a few minutes? Uh, we have had, you know, equities, basically, if I look at the S&P 500 as, you know, the largest market cap weighted index, um, ranging between 4,200 and 4,600 since the beginning of the year. And, you know, it's trading relatively weakish, uh, but, you know, over the last few days I had a bounce back. What do you make of risk assets in general here? I think it's hard to be very positive on risk assets. Um, and the main reason is that central banks tell us not to. Uh, it's it's essentially the first check mark I have every time I, I look at a trade idea, whether central banks are behind or against the trade. Uh, and they are not like explicitly against risk assets now, but uh, they certainly don't want to see uh, financial conditions easing from here. Uh, and if we get expanding multiples, that would uh, constitute uh, easier financial conditions, uh, which is in sharp contrast to what the Fed wants right now. Uh, they simply want financial conditions to tighten, uh, and they can um, they can tighten financial conditions both via uh, the interest rate channel, of course, but it also helps if equity multiples stay contract uh, in that sense. So. Right now, I don't think you have the backing of central banks to be super upbeat on uh, on risk assets in general. Um, the counter argument, uh, and I've seen that used by, by a few commentators as well, is that the market has been uh, almost remarkably resilient to the repricing we've seen of um, of the hiking cycle of the Federal Reserve, but also other central banks. Uh, so I would probably also have guessed that equity markets would have traded lower given where uh, fixed income markets are trading now. Wow, Andres, have you just admitted of being wrong? I can't yes. believe this. No, 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 no. I've learned over the last few months, but actually throughout my career, that strategists are never wrong, Andres. So, I mean, shame on you. Yeah. You can't be wrong. It's forbidden. It's forbidden. I you just had the time horizon wrong. <laughs> Isn't that <laughs> the right. perfect yeah. excuse? <laughs> now you're adjusting. Um, what yeah. also impressed me is that 30-year uh, mortgage rates in America breached 5%. 
And yeah. I always pay some attention to the real estate market because it is the biggest market cap asset class of the entire world. And although people tend to focus a lot on equities and bonds because they're liquid, they're highly traded, the real estate market accounts for 57% of global wealth. So when that moves, then you should pay attention as well because it's that second round effects. And third-year mortgage rates above 5% with house prices in America having increased about 20% last year and salaries not having increased in real terms or actually decreased in real terms makes it, in my opinion, much difficult for the marginal buyer to accept current prices and to be able to afford them. So the average mortgage installment has gone up by 40% since last year as a combination of house prices being more expensive and mortgage rates being higher, while the salary hasn't really changed in real terms. So what's what's going on in, in the real estate market? I mean, you, you also work today in, in one of the largest real estate funds in Europe. So uh, what's your take there? Well, um, usually you see a time lag between the developments in mortgage rates and the uh, developments in nominal prices on, on real estate. So I guess we, uh, we should expect something similar to happen this time around. Um, if 30-year mortgages in the U.S., uh, rise as much as they've done over the past couple of months, then it would be almost gullible, I would say, to expect no effect on on prices. Um, but over the uh, over the medium term, then I remain optimistic on on um, on real estate for a whole bunch of reasons. But um, this will, of course, affect the marginal pricing. And the last point I want to uh, go across, uh, as our guest is going to be talking about that uh, for a bit, it's commodities. So we have seen spot prices of commodities increasing across the board, one can say, with industrial commodities, energy-related commodities leading the pack. Um, but there is one thing that really impresses me, that we hear a lot of this commodity super cycle. Um, Goldman Sachs is calling for one, for example. If I look at the, the shape of the future curves in commodities, I see mm. backwardation all over the place which means that spot prices are much higher than future prices. One example, the May 2022 copper future trades higher than the May 2025 copper future. Hmm. Or the oil future, it's exactly the same story. The front end is above $100 and three years down the road, it's $75, right? So effectively, this, this sharp backwardation is telling us that it's a sharp temporary supply demand imbalance, which is somehow going to resolve itself over the next few years. So this commodity super cycle seems to be not really priced that much. I mean, the macro vigilantes are not really doing uh, no. much of a, of a stretch there uh, to, to correct this imbalance. Do you think a commodity super cycle is ahead of us, Andreas, or do you have a different take on commodities? It's, it's gaining on me. Um, first of all, due to the supply side restrictions that we see uh, getting tailwinds on, on a running basis politically right now. Uh, each and every week, European politicians restrict uh, the supply of a new uh, energy resource um, due to geopolitical considerations. Um, there may be a bunch of good reasons to do that from a geopolitical standpoint, but it, of course, comes with repercussions for the overall supply-demand outlook. Um, and uh, if we look at the um, uh, the amount of, for example, copper needed uh, in the whole process uh, of um, of battling climate change, um, then I think there are reasons to be relatively upbeat on commodities over the medium term. Uh, and right now, the market is pricing some sort of normalization over time. Uh, we have a massive backwardation um, in uh, in most commodity markets, um, and 
um, I think there's value in uh, in looking into the to the longer end of that futures curve. Um, the medium term outlook at least look uh, looks uh, less benign for the supply side than uh, what seems to be penciled in by markets. All right, Andreas, thanks for your view on commodities, but it's now time to introduce, finally, our inaugural guest for the macro trading floor. I'm extremely happy to have uh, the one and only Jim Leitner, James Leitner, also known as Jim Leitner, who's a veteran of financial markets and now the CEO of its family office called Falcon Management. Jim, how are you doing? I'm perfectly happy to be here. I'm happy to have you guys as friends. I think it's super important to have a wide network of friends. That's part of cutting through the noise and finding the signal. And you guys are great at it. We're going to give it a try. So, uh, Jim, let's have a chat about your underlying macro thesis behind what's going to be your macro investment idea at the end. So walk us through a bit your big picture macro view. Well, obviously... The defining change in the last two years has been the rise of inflation, right? And it's mostly exemplified by commodities having gone up quite dramatically. You know, that started sometime in 21, um, say early 21. Last year, commodities were the best performing asset category, beating even the S&P. And, you know, that theme has only become exacerbated by the Ukrainian conflict because both Russia and Ukraine are very large commodity exporters. And, you know, when you're in the middle of a war, you clearly cannot export the same way you did before. So there are supply issues with Ukrainian ports, etc. And then on top of it, you have the whole idea of sanctions, which is holding back oil, exports, production, looking for new markets where a sanctioned country can sell at a discount. It's not that easy to rejigger a supply chain and commodities. So, you know, something that was already happening for a year has become much more turbocharged, number one. Number two, with inflation being such an important issue for central banks around the world, because for a while, you know, it was a question about, is it transitory? Is it embedded in the system? Is it only supply chains? Is it coming from the demand side? Especially the U.S. and the European central banks were very slow at reacting to it. And, you know, more recently, of course, uh, I would say around end of November, December, Jay Powell became a convert and informed us that inflation was going to be more important. And, you know, very recently, the ECB has been starting to talk similarly. So, you know, central bank policy needs to affect the real economy. And how do we measure that in the big picture? You look at financial conditions indexes, just to see what what is the impact actually of central bank policy. And, you know, if you look at the U.S., the FCI has clearly tightened a little bit. I mean, it's, it's gone. I use the Goldman Sachs FCI. It's gone from like 97 to 98 and a half. But, you know, in the big picture, it's still stimulative. I mean, it's not actually very tight yet. In order to get to, say, 100, which I think would 
historically mean that it was somewhat constraining. You know, you need to have um, some of the five underlying markets that drive the FCI become more restrictive. So what are those five things? Well, um, you have the dollar. You know, if the dollar goes up, it becomes more restrictive. The Fed doesn't have that much influence. They don't really target the dollar. Of course, as they're raising interest rates against other G10 currencies especially, the dollar has gone up. And the euro has been somewhat weak in general. And the Ukrainian conflict clearly is another negative to Europe. One doesn't know exactly what that is going to mean, et cetera, et cetera. So forget about the dollar in terms of FCI. You know, that means a short and long interest rates. Well, they have clearly gone up. They've clearly tightened. The market has tightened more than the Fed has tightened, right? The Fed has actually tightened 25 basis points, but the forward curve that really implies what the market believes is going to happen or what's built into market prices, you know, has Fed funds rates way higher over the next 18 months or so. Yeah. You know, peak, peaking out close to uh, neutral. And the Fed has told us that their target now is actually restrictive. And in the last statements that they've made, they've talked about a Fed funds rate of like 2.8%, which, you know, would be about 30, 40 basis points restrictive. And it kind of makes sense. If you want to slow down inflation, you actually have to go past neutral a little bit. You can't just go to neutral, right? The other way to then tighten the FCI is you could have a much lower stock market, right? So each percent lower is about five basis points up in the FCI. So if you just only move the stock market to adjust the FCI, which is obviously not what is going to happen, it would, in order to get back from 98 and a half to 100, you would have to drop the stock market by almost 30%. Yeah. We're talking about some massive moves. And yeah. of course, then your credit spreads. You know, as they widen, that has the same tightening impact. And, and the way the FCI is going to tighten eventually, because the Fed has basically told us they're going to tighten it, you know, some of all of these things will work together. The credit spreads will widen, the stock market will come down, the dollar index, I'm not sure what will happen to it. Um, and rates, I'm not even sure if they can go that much higher on the forward curve right now, but, you know, they could actually extend the tightenings. You know, they're going to do much more than 50 at the meeting right now. There's no meeting that's building in 75 yet, right? I mean, the maximum they're building in is 50. We'll see. You know, they could just go 50, 50, 50 for another six meetings and, you know, we'd be at 325. It's possible. Um, you yeah, know, a lot will depend on um the actual numbers i mean as the fed has told us one of the things that has annoyed me about the fed is that they're going to be nimble you know being nimble the hedge funds are supposed to be nimble family offices are supposed to be nimble monetary policy works with a say a one-year lag you know whether it's nine months or 18 months depending on the transmission mechanism so you know it seems to me that there's a policy mistake coming when you're trying to be nimble because you're reacting to backward-looking data, you know, like inflation does something, you know, comes down or it goes up much more than people expected. What do you do now? You tighten a lot more? Well, you know, your tightenings are already going to feed through the system and slow things down. 
So the fact that um, we are probably going to face some kind of policy mistake in the next 12 months and and you know it's the fed's objective is to have a soft landing but it's very difficult to what they say in the u.s thread the needle like to get <laughs> that exact path that will just get you a soft landing with lower inflation it's not easy and a lot of it's just random noise it might happen it might not happen we have zero effect on what's going to happen in the world the war you know, agricultural production does not respond to the Fed. You know, it responds to the price of fertilizers. It responds to the weather. I mean, you know, the Fed can do whatever it wants. Corn prices are not going to be driven by whether Fed funds rate is at 0.25 or 2.25, right? So, so you know, I think we're facing a um, recession with higher probability than the market might assume sometime in the next two years, whether it takes 12 months or maybe it takes nine months, maybe it takes 18 months. My feeling is that the risk towards the recession is higher than 50-50. I don't think that they will be able to thread the needle and create the soft landing that they would like to create. So if you look at history, if you look at asset performance, prior to a recession, what is the best performing asset? If you look 24 months before a recession, 12 months before a recession, you know, as recessions are defined by the NBER. So you can just look and do the history. Well, the best performing asset historically are, com are the commodity markets. Commodity markets in the last, in general, if you look back at history, 24 months before a recession, how much, how did commodity markets do until the recession starts? Up about 20 to 25%. And Jim, why so, would that be the case? You know, I think recessions are driven by tightening of monetary policy, right? And why is monetary policy tightening? Because commodities tend to be going up during that period of time. And I think it's a circular argument. You know, as commodities go up, they raise rates more. It increases the probability of, um, a recession, <laughs> eventually they tighten rates by enough that the commodity impact gets reflected in the real economy. So why the commodities went up by themselves, that could be a totally different question because like we said, the agriculturals are not driven by monetary policy at all. I'm not even sure they're driven by fiscal policy. Um, but you know, if we look at what has happened in commodities from the last peak was around 2008. Like we had this swing up and then commodities declined till 2021. And on average, if you lose a Bloomberg function, TRA, which gives you a total return analysis, and you look at you know, the BCOM, Bloomberg Commodity Index, from 2008 to 2022 today, it has been compounded minus six point something percent per annum drop. So in absolute numbers, it has dropped something like 56, 57%. Well, during that period of time, when commodities drop that much, people are not investing into commodities. They're not building new facilities. They're not making new mines they're because they're, they're seeing commodity prices drop. Where is their profitability going to come from? So we have constrained supply quite effectively. On top of it, we've had the ESG 
movement, which in the E is talking about climate change. And you know, to address climate change, we need to move away from fossil fuels. We need to cut back on uh, CO2 emissions. That means that we have not really invested in anything in terms of energy production in the fossil fuel world. And we still basically are all driving cars that use fossil fuels. Will we have EVs by 2035? Probably many, many people will, but you know, this is not the day. Today, we're still driving normal cars with ICEs and you know, you need fossil fuels. And given that um, uh, production has been constrained and now we have Russia sanctions, et cetera, you know, oil is under upward pressure and that's creating inflationary pressures. And when you look at US inflation and you break it down, where did it come from? You know, the Department of Labor or Bureau of Labor has uh, a little website that you can click on. It'll tell you what the components of the inflation were. And energy is the biggest impact on inflation right now. So, you know, and it's not going away in terms of us quickly bringing new energy online. It's just not happening because banks are not happy to lend to the energy sector. You know, they don't want to be involved with being blamed for more climate issues. Um, you know, there's not that much new capital being directed to it. Anyway, so in the big picture, to me, you know, the probabilities of recession have increased, the probabilities of the stock market coming down have increased. Um, and in the big picture, commodities, I think, will continue to do quite well for another 12 months, whatever it takes until we actually really hit the recession and demand starts dropping. So, from that perspective, you know, um, I look around the world and I say to myself, well, who is going to benefit from higher commodity prices? And obviously, the person who creates commodities and exports them is going to do better than the guy who's importing commodities, right? So who are the biggest commodity exporters? Well, of course, we have Russia, Ukraine, they're Export mix is very commodity driven, but you can exclude them because of the supply chain issues. Who, who is left? Well, in the G10, we have Australia left. And outside of the G10, we have in the emerging markets quite a few candidates. Now, one thing you then want to do is you want to think about how far away from the conflict can you be? Well, Latin America is really far away from the conflict. You've got to fly for a long period of time until you get to the Ukraine. So, you know, one of the focuses we've had is looking at Latin America. And all the Latin American countries are basically commodity exporters. You have Chile, you're a huge, world's largest copper exporter. If you're Brazil, you're the world's largest soybean exporter and soybean oils and uh, iron ore. And, you know, you look at the terms of trade which are the ratio of export prices to import prices, right? And that tells you how things are changing or improving. So I tend to look at the Citibank one because it's freely available on Bloomberg, CTOT, Citibank Terms of Trade, and then you just put down the currency. So you put down Brazil, for example, CTOT, BRL. Well, it in the last, um, in the last, three months, four months, since the beginning of the year, has improved by 17, by 13.4%. Well, clearly that's going to be good for the currency, 
Now, what could be bad for the currency? Well, historically, the emerging markets have been correlated as risk assets to the S&P or the global equity market. So if global equity markets come down, that should not that should be a negative for these kind of currencies. So <clears throat> given that the S&P at the beginning of the year was at say 4,800, and today it's uh, we're 4,440, so it's down say six, 7%, that should have been a negative for dollar Brazil because Brazil is a risky place, equities are going down. Historically, the correlation would tell you that dollar Brazil should have been higher. Well, at the beginning of the year, dollar Brazil was 560. Today it's 470. So the Brazilian currency has appreciated 17%. Well, then you look at the terms of trade and you say, well, the terms of trade have actually appreciated 13.5%. Okay, now it starts making sense. You know, the, the market is focusing on commodities. The market is focusing on um, terms of trade of countries, and that seems to be having right now a more pronounced effect than the equity market effect, which historically has been strong, but right now doesn't seem to be that strong. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that I thought the Fed was being a little bit um, too nimble, you know, and they should have realized earlier that maybe they should stop QE because when they start talking about inflation, yet they're adding <laughs> a monetary base and buying securities, it seems like a disconnect between their thinking and their actions. Finally, that has stopped, that's good. But if you look around the world, and you look at emerging markets, they tended to get ahead of the curve. So Brazil, Brazil had 2% interest rates. Um, they use this thing called CELIC, which is the like our Fed funds rate, CELIC was at 2% in March of 2021. The central bank inflation target is something like two to 5%. It's three and a half plus minus one and a half. Well, in March, the actual year over year CPI went over 5%. It started going to six. Did they wait? No, they started raising rates. That was it, boom. There is no symmetric inflation target uh, in Brazil, Jim. If it goes above the band, they go for it. Yes, the central bank is independent. They went for it. They started raising rates in May 21, uh, in um, March 21. So they were actually right with the market. If anybody wants to be nimble, they should look at the central bank in Brazil. They did a very creditable job. They told us what their targets are. And the moment that inflation was outside the target, they jumped on it and they started raising. Has inflation gotten worse? Yes. You know, at first it was at six, then it went to eight, then it went to 10. The last numbers were something like 11.5%. Very high inflation. Then again, the last numbers in the US are 8.5%, right? So it's not such a crazy number. It's only 3% more than the US, which. You know, it seems to be kind of like a normal spread between Brazilian inflation and U.S. inflation over the last 18 months. But the BCB has raised rates from 2 to 11.75. So as inflation <laughs> moved up, 
but from wherever it was, once it went through a target, it went another 6% higher. They raised rates 8%, 9%, 9 and three quarter percent. And, you know, about uh, two, three weeks ago, the central bank was saying, well, we think we might be getting to the end of the cycle. You know, we've aggressively addressed what we think we need to do. And the market was a, a little bit concerned that Brazil sold off a little tiny bit. And then about a week later, they had the next inflation numbers come out. And the expectation had been that the month-over-month -month inflation would be 1.35%, and it came out at 1.62%. On a dime, the central bank changed its rhetoric. On a dime. They didn't say, oh, you know, maybe this is just a one-month adjustment. No. They immediately said, basically, expect more hikes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they are not fooling around. They're not getting involved with the politics of an election that's coming in Brazil in October. They're not saying, well, you know, we have to be careful not to create a recession before. You know, they're basically saying we're going to do whatever it takes. We're going to keep raising rates. And so now the market is forecasting another 100 basis points at the next monetary policy meeting, which is beginning of May. And the, if you look at the um, pre-CDI strip, which is basically like our three-month uh, interest rates, like Eurodollar futures, they have a futures market for mon money market interest rates. And it shows that you know, those rates will go over 13% and will create a growth slowdown. And the central bank has said that growth is gonna slow down dramatically. They don't care. I mean, they do care. They wish it wouldn't happen, but you know, their target is we want to bring inflation down. So to me, if I can buy the currency of a, of a country where the central bank acted very credibly, which has the terms of trade that are improving dramatically, when I expect their export prices not to be dropping over the next 18 months, when the positive carry versus your other currency, I tend to do Brazil against the dollar, but some people might be based in Europe and they might do Brazil against Euro. It's a huge positive carry trade. Like you're making like close to 1% a month. Yeah, it's in double digit territory annually. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, a, it's really a phenomenally interesting trade. What are the downsides? Well, the downside is people have learned about it and the market's kind of crowded. You know, it's not like this is the first time somebody's talking about Brazil, number one. So the trade is crowded. What does that mean? Does it mean it's going to be wrong? No. Just because the trade is crowded doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that the downside volatility on bad news gets bigger. So you just have to expect that and, and have to take it into your thinking what are you going to do when the trade comes to an end? How is it going to end? What if bad news comes out and starts going against you? How far can it go? Probably further than it would have the positions were not very crowded. Right? But in the big picture, the way I've always approached things is to buy a bunch of options. So if I buy a bunch of options, I know what my downside is. You know, the options can go to zero. And they're not going to zero given that, you know, we started buying the Brazilian currency when it was about 5.3, 5.4. So, you know, I think we'll, we'll try to manage the portfolio, but our expectation is that 
we will continue to see a stronger currency. Number one, it helps the central bank. They're happy with it. The Treasury is not complaining about falling exports because the exports are doing perfectly well. <laughs> Iron ore is being sold. <laughs> Soybeans are being sold. Everybody is buying the Brazilian goods that are the most important part of the export basket. So, you know, whether currency is at uh, 460 or 440 or 480, the, the Brazilian treasury doesn't care. Now, in December of 2019, so just before COVID, dollar Brazil was at 395. Now we're at 460. Should it go back to 395? I don't know. But would it surprise me if it touched four again? No, it wouldn't surprise me. You know, at some point we're post-COVID. Even if COVID's every place still in the system, we've all gotten accustomed to it and dealing with it and putting it behind us and not being worried about it. So, you know, my theory here is that I'm earning 1% a month or so on positive carry. The target for the actual spot level of the currency is still stronger by another 10-15%. Um, I've bought a bunch of options so that I find much easier to manage in terms of you know, reversals based on something. So what could another, be another reason for reversal? Well, the politics, obviously in Brazil are much more dangerous. We, we have a right-wing government right now, which has done pretty poorly in general. However, you know, Lula, who is from the left-wing Workers' Party, in the polls looks like he will be the next president. Well, now, of course, you get to populism and people start being nervous, etc. However, Lula, we have experience with. He was the president from 2003 to 2011, right? So we can look at what happened. Well, in 2002, 2003, as he was becoming more and more certain to win the election, the dollar Brazil weak, uh, went up, the Brazil weakened because people were nervous about Lula being a populist and he might nationalize things and who knows what else, he, he's gonna blow the budget, you know, on doing social programs, etc. So. 2002-03, dollar Brazil goes from 2.3 to 3.3. It it, the Brazilian real weakens. By 2011, when he finishes his term, it's at 1.8. It strengthens by 50%, you know, from 3.5 to 1.8, whatever the exact numbers were. The market started learning that he wasn't such a terrible guy. You know, he's trying to make the country better. He implemented a lot of social programs that worked out quite well. And I think right now the market's actually relatively sanguine about his election prospects. As a matter of fact, it seems to me as if the markets are positively inclined towards him because the polls have been showing that he will probably win. Things, of course, change. We still have, whatever, six months till October. So... Jim, if I look at your trade, it's basically a long Brazilian real short dollar trade implemented via options, which might be a bit complicated for some of our audience to replicate, uh, especially the options. Side. Do, can you see any uh, decent proxies to express this that are 
let's say, uh, non-friendly to non-institutional investors. And with the disclaimer that proxy trades are always proxy trades for a definition. So they're not exactly the trade you're talking about, but maybe there is a way to express the trade. Yes, for sure. So personally, I can do it using these options and have ISDAs, etc. But if I didn't, what I would do is I would buy the Brazilian stock market ETF in the US. It's called EWZZ. Um, and it is the Brazilian stock market, but in US dollars because it trades in the US. So you're getting a dollar Brazil input. Now, of course, you also long the Brazilian stock market. So now you have to make a decision. Do you like being long stocks? Don't you like being long stocks? Totally a separate decision you should make. Personally, with my view on the SCI going higher, I am more inclined to not be long stocks. So I would hedge it by selling some SPY against it, which is the ETF for the S&P. So I take out some of the equity risk. Is it perfect? No, because it's Brazilian equity risk versus hedged with the U.S. equity risk. But, you know, in the big picture of the world, the equities in general trend to, trend together. You know, and if the U.S. market really were to come off 10, 20 percent, maybe Brazilian equities would come down also, even though you know, the underlying income streams look to be solid right now. They're clearly slowing down as an economy because the central bank has raised rates so much. So I, I like the idea of long EWZ, short SPY as a package. And I think anybody can implement that. And EWZ also has options. So if you wanted to be risk averse or just maybe risk controlled, you could buy call options on EWZ and then go short the delta amount against the SPY. Or you could buy puts on the SPY, which are normally more expensive because the put calls uh, parity in S&P, the wings for the puts are always more expensive than the wings for the call. But, you know, there are many different ways to implement this trade. Jim, I think you have basically answered all the questions that we had, because we were about to ask you what could be wrong with your trade, and you already said what could be wrong with your trade. You've elaborated a great macro thesis underlying it, also expressed ways to implement it, which are uh, friendly to non-institutional investors. So I guess, Andreas, we're just left to uh, to thank Jim for this uh, great macro underlying thesis and trade idea. Jim, you're the first institutional investor that I've met not being scared of Lula. <laughs> so, uh, first one off. <laughs> well, maybe that's where we're different. But the market doesn't seem to be scared. So that's no, important. True, true, true. You know, and if the Brazilians who know the system better than we ever will, because, you know, I'm definitely somebody who knows a little bit about a lot of things. So my knowledge about Brazil is mediocre. It's okay, but it's not as much in depth as somebody who's Brazilian. I don't even speak Portuguese. How can I be a real expert? So the other thing is that the zeitgeist is important. So in, you know, Brazil, does it have a positive feeling to it when people think about it? Well, in New York, you know, one of the things I do is I follow the arts in, in the town. And last year, the Museum of Modern Art had a huge Brazilian photography show. It was a positive number. It's positive that people want to go to Brazilian photography show. 
The New Yorker, which is um, a magazine which comes out every week, but it's a little bit highbrow intellectual. They, this week, had a long article on Ketano Veloso, who is a musician, a famous Brazilian musician. Again, you know, like the, the story of Brazil, the narrative that I'm seeing, even outside of trading, is becoming more and more positive. Anyway, so that's, that's my story. <laughs> Thank you, Jim, for, uh, for being the first guest of the Macro Trading Floor. It's been a great pleasure to have you here. One last question. In case people want to know more about you or you know, find you or contact you, how can they do that? Sure, just uh, send me an email, jleitner at falconmgt.com. Guys, and Jim is the... answer. Jim is a, for people who don't know, is a guy who was featured in Inside the House of Money book, uh, which is a, a great book featuring hedge fund managers and other risk takers. He's also a very humble guy, tends to think that uh, uh, he can be wrong the whole time, which is one of the traits of successful investors. Jim, thanks, thanks again for, for being here with us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me and good luck with the podcast. Thank Take you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. So this was really a uh, a good case by uh, by Jim on on Brazil, uh, a very compelling uh, narrative, uh, and uh, also a very good point on um, the central bank being one of the most proactive uh, when it comes to fighting in uh, inflation, uh, in particular relative to um, to other Western central banks. I'm a little bit uh, surprised that he's so calm about the prospect of Lula being um, the next president of uh, Brazil. Uh, we should remember that Lula was imprisoned in, I think it was in 2018, um, based on a money laundering case. So he's not a good guy. Um, I know that it's more common than not for uh, Brazilian presidents to be imprisoned post their, uh, <laughs> their reign. Um, it's even worse than in Italy, Alfonso, I can guarantee you that. Uh, but <laughs> um, but uh, his point was that um, it is already baked in, given that opinion polls sort of hint that Lula is the favorite candidate uh, and i think i can take some comfort in that view as well um even though lula is certainly not a good option um and i consider him substantially worse from an economic perspective than uh, bolsonaro yeah so it's basically jim on the pol on the politics side is making the same point of um the french elections we just saw where yeah. basically after le pen and macron uh, went to the second round after both basically qualifying for the second round of the presidential elections, the euro actually appreciated overnight against the Swiss franc and the dollar and other currencies. As in basically the worst case scenario has been priced away, which was the Mélenchon-Le Pen second round. And therefore yes. most of the negative side was already priced in by market participants. I think Jim is trying to make a similar point here, Andreas, where he's not the only one that knows that Lula is likely to be the next president. And nevertheless... No, no. The Brazilian real has appreciated substantially since the beginning of the year. I can agree with you that its econ his economic policies are likely to be debatable, to say the least. But Jim also <laughs> has a point that you know market expectations are should be rationally already somehow priced in from uh, from that perspective. The overall macro thesis is basically, I mean, I have to say, a very compelling one. Um, mm. It's very good that Jim is a self-aware investor that thinks about what what could be wrong. And ultimately he knows that most of the trade relies on commodity prices uh, basically remaining higher 
than long-dated futures are pricing games yes. because we have spot commodity prices going very high, soybeans and iron ore and anything else that Brazil is exporting. But if you look at the futures, as we discussed before, of these commodity prices, they are in backwardation. So they're supposed to go down. And Jim believes that we are in a transition phase where some of these commodities are going to be in high demand while supply is constrained by ESG and so on and so forth. And this is not correctly priced in markets. So the terms of trades in Brazil will improve accordingly. And therefore, being long Brazilian real is a good idea. So what do you make of the backbone of this macro thesis behind this trade? I, I basically think that uh, we see political tailwinds for the uh, commodity super cycle story. Uh, mm -hmm. So in that sense, I tend to agree with the structural outlook. Uh, right about every week, we get new political messages, uh, in, in particular from Europe, but also from the US, um, constraining supply of important energy resources over the coming decades, uh, both as a consequence of, of ESG thinking, but uh, also as a consequence of geopolitical thinking. And there may, there may be a bunch of good reasons to do that from a geopolitical standpoint, uh, but it comes with repercussions for the supply demand picture in, uh, in commodity space. Uh, so I tend to like the structural outlook of this trade. What I fear about it is the timing. Um, Jim also acknowledged that this this is a slightly crowded trade. Uh, being long Brazilian real is is a super crowded trade. At least if you look at the futures data, uh, being long the Brazilian stock market is is a crowded trade. Uh, given that it's basically the only stock market performing so far this year, um, so so that's what I'm a little bit scared about that it's a crowded trade already, uh, and that um, being a high beta country, that it, it, it may uh, risk uh, the wrath of markets if the Federal Reserve keeps uh, tightening their, their rhetorical stance. Yeah, so the, the risk premium embedded in the trade actually is, is an interesting one. And I see these as a relatively smart, but still a proxy expression of the main thesis behind, which is, Commodity backdated futures, according to Jim, are not priced correctly for the ESG transition to come. So I would uh, basically, um, if I have to choose, um, well, between the, the, the Brazilian real dollar or the EWZ, which is the Brazilian uh, stock market ETF edged against SPY, uh, between the two, I have to say I would rather get the currency exposure uh, than the equity exposure be because of the high beta nature of emerging markets. And if you expect an equity market sell-off, then being exposed also to the equity risk premium in Brazil might not be the smartest idea. But moreover, I think the cleanest expressions in trades without second and third derivatives are probably to be preferred. And here, the backbone of the macro thesis uh, from Jim that I am starting to subscribe to, the more I look into it, the more I become convinced about it, is that backdated future in commodity prices are not correctly appreciating the demand supply imbalance here to stay because of the political tailwinds, as you have said, for multiple years. So why not just buying some long-dated commodity futures, for example, instead of buying the short-dated one, buy the long-dated one, which are in backwardation. That might be one idea. I'm just throwing that at you, Andreas. What do you say? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, and I think the sort of the purest bet on uh, this whole transitional story on ESG and geopolitical uh, uh, the geopolitical uh, reasons to to um, to move away from natural gas would be to just be long natural gas in 2025, for example. Uh, we have a, ma a material backwardation of the natural gas uh, curve as well. 
and uh, I feel um, quite amazed when I see that backwardation and at the same time listen to politicians saying that we should not buy one single uh, uh, barrel of uh, of Russian natural gas in a, in a year from now because yeah. that's essentially what they're saying. Yeah, indeed. And uh, so going to the direct source of the trade is generally, a, in my experience, a better and cleaner expression of your macro thesis. Once it happened to me that a colleague in another another institution actually proxy traded something because of better liquidity in the proxy than in the real trade he wanted to set up. And once he drew a couple of lines, the regression showed a 98% correlation. So he was very comfortable proxy trading the more liquid instrument instead of his underlying idea till the 98% correlation broke. And then he had some questions from the risk managers, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, that's always the issue with a proxy trade. Um, it works historically, but uh, there are no guarantees that it works in the future. <laughs> Indeed. So, uh, Andreas, shall we uh, just wrap it up by by repeating the trade that Jim Leitner uh, put on, which is to be long Brazilian real against the dollar? Um, he's targeting another ten to fifteen percent appreciation from here. We are recording on April fourteenth, two thousand and twenty-two. Um, the more friendly way to express that trade if you're a non-institutional investor is to be exposed to EWZ, which is the uh, Brazilian ETF or any other Brazilian stock ETF, and possibly to hedge the equity risk premium by being short SPY or any other ETF on the S&P 500 against it. Um, is that a fair summary, Andreas? I think so. Uh, and then it is worth remembering that uh, in the currency bet, being long Brazilian real versus the dollar, you actually have uh, roughly um, 10 to 11% of positive carry with you uh, in that position. So it essentially means that you can be wrong on the spot developments and still make money. I think that was all for the show, folks. Um, we uh, we hope you liked the, uh, the concept and uh, you should make sure to tune in every Sunday for, for more concrete macro action from uh, Alfonso and me. Remember that you can find us on all podcast apps. You can find us on Twitter. And then remember to follow Blockworks YouTube channel as uh, well. If you don't subscribe to that, make yourself a favor and go and check it out. Uh, then we also want to thank the Blockworks team uh, and in particular co-founder Mikey Polito for being part of building this show. So see you again next Sunday. Goodbye from uh, me, Andreas Steno. And from me, Alfonso Peccatello. See you next Sunday, guys. Bye.